A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Alva. I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we discuss Robert Jenrick's cladding proposals. And you ask us, why aren't the Lib Dems doing better than the Greens? So yesterday, Robert Jenrick announced his much-anticipated plans for resolving the ongoing cladding problem with unsafe cladding on on lots of buildings around the UK. He had a package of just over £3 billion for buildings over 18 metres in England. Anush, you wrote a great analysis of this yesterday, sort of what this quite limited thing does and doesn't do. Would you mind sort of running through the big problems with it? And also the good things if, you know, if you want to start on a positive note. <laughs> yeah, well, it, no, it is a good thing that they're, they're releasing more funding for this because it is a widespread problem, essentially for those who haven't been following the ins and outs of it. People who are living in buildings that are wrapped in the similar type of dangerous cladding that the Grenfell Tower had when it was refurbished are in sort of a difficult position where they are having to have their buildings remediated to take away the fire unsafe stuff and leaseholders are having to pay for those costs as well as the other costs that come around these kind of changes. So whether that's insurance, service charge on your building or, you know, other fire safety things like having to have a waking watch if you're living in a building that's unsafe. So while the government has been taking cladding off social housing buildings and other above 18 high rises since the Grenfell Tower fire, there's, I mean, the estimates are that there's millions of other people who were trapped in private buildings being hit with these huge costs. And there's already been bankruptcies of people stuck in this situation. Obviously, you can't remortgage your house because mortgage lenders aren't giving mortgages on these flats anymore. And also you can't sell it either because who's going to buy that? And this sort of seems to be falling on the shoulders of leaseholders in blocks of flats, many of whom are on shared ownership schemes or have got their first property through help to buy, for example, or sometimes it's people who want to retire and move and they've found themselves stuck in in flats that they can't sell and that are too expensive for them to live in. So it's a really horrible situation for a lot of people and the government so far hasn't really taken it particularly seriously there was 1.6 billion pounds made available last year which was nowhere near enough Robert Jenrick yesterday announced 3.5 billion but again this was only for buildings over 18 meters in England and the reason for that is because the over 18 meter blocks are thought to be the ones that 
are most dangerous. Nevertheless, um, there's a great many other blocks that are lower than that and also the over 18 metre and under 18 metre blocks in, in the other devolved nations that aren't getting this funding. Instead, in England, there's going to be a loan system for those in lower blocks, but there's no suggestion of how long you'd have to pay these loan repayments, only that there would be no more than £50 a month. But why, most people are asking, do leaseholders have to pay anything at all for something that is just not at all their fault? When you buy a flat, you don't expect that it's been built to unsafe standards. So it's the fault of government regulation. And it's also the fault of the people who build these buildings as is coming out of the Grenfell Tower inquiry that's ongoing at the moment that we've discussed before in the podcast. So the problem is that um, Robert Jenrick's funding doesn't go far enough. The remit or the eligibility of the funding isn't broad enough. But also he only spoke about the removal of unsafe cladding. There's so many other problems that people are having to shoulder the costs to fix. So whether that's you know, the insulation materials, lots of the problems that happened at Grenfell were from the insulation materials and how they'd been used in the building. Again, the fire warden costs for running these waking watches while you wait for the work to be done to try and keep you safe. Fire alarm systems, wooden balconies, cavity barriers, all of these other problems he he didn't mention. So it seems to be quite a narrow remit. And it hasn't just been, you know, whiny lefty journalists like me complaining that his, that his policies don't go far enough. There is a building Tory rebellion basically gathering around this amendment that two Tory MPs have proposed for the fire safety bill saying that no costs should fall on, on leaseholders who are living in these buildings. And I'm sure Stephen can fill us in more about the politics behind this. Yeah, so the politics of it are just sort of astonishingly crazy, right? Because so in twenty eight in May twenty eighteen, which I mean was scandalously late enough anyway, the government accepted not only the local authority and housing association maintained blocks of flats would have their cladding removed, but the central government would would pay for it. But of course, like it is plainly ridiculous for all the reasons you've just set out, Anoush, to suggest that it is the responsibility of the tenant or the leaseholder to have to pay for a failure of regulation, right? Robert Jenrick's argument is akin to saying that, not akin to, he is, his his explicit argument rests on the idea that if you go to DFS, you buy a sofa, unless you literally got a thing of matches, lit them and threw them at the sofa before buying them to check when they didn't ignite, you do not have a reasonable expectation that your sofa is fire safe, right? (laughs) That is his argument, right? Or like you only do if your sofa is of a certain size. Yeah. Three-seater, yes, we'll we'll (laughs) pay you back. Two-seater, sorry, no can do. And this is the thing is that the argument was, you know, I think morally and intellectually bankrupt when it was all blocks of flats, right? Yeah, but the, the political craziness, as you know, one of the Conservative MPs has been campaigning on this for a really long time. They just said, honestly, the only way that the government position makes sense makes sense to me politically is if someone's gone, wow, it was pretty shameful when it took till May of 2018 for us to do this. Maybe we should keep delaying it so we eventually do pay the deserved political price. Because <laughs> once you've conceded the point correctly that it's not reasonable for like this is the thing, it's like, it would obviously not be reasonable for me to have to pay for the removal of dangerous cladding from blocks like mine, which are local authorities. And really, I mean, thank goodness to NS podcast listeners that they have made that decision because otherwise every week of the podcast would be cladding week. <laughs> but once you've conceded that point for a local authority maintained block and a housing association block, there is literally no argument that changes if you are a privately owned block. And the argument becomes even crazier if, um, 
it's 18 metres and six storeys. Well, at the seventh storey, that's the point when leaseholders suddenly lose their powers of omniscience. So, hmm, I sense fire danger. Like that, that's, that can't be the case. And the, thing is, the reason why this has now become <laughs> particularly politically... I mean, one is that the people who were informed about it first, you know, have been a very well-organised campaign, very helpful, done all the, you know, the kind of stuff to get people engaged. But the reason why it's made the, becoming particularly acute and painful in the Conservative Party is broadly the swing and Conservative voters are like the last group of people left now. Now, I'm not saying that, obviously, like there are loads of people who are committed Labour, committed Green, committed Lib Dem voters who live in, you know, in, in nice private blocks of flats. And indeed, you know, it's not like my block of flats is not a very nice block. But broadly, like if you have been a beneficiary of conservative housing policies, you are quite likely to live in one of these blocks. A lot of marginal seats have got like at least one, one or two blocks to meet this description. And they are an electorally non-trivial number of people. And to make matters worse, one MP put this really well to me when they kind of said, the thing the Tory government has not got, but Tory MPs have started to understand, is it's not just, oh, you know, yeah, a young woman gets help to buy a mortgage when her like grandmother dies and they sell off the flat and she like lives in her like nice private block somewhere in, in Manchester or London or whatever. And if she's in London, she maybe lives in one of the marginal seats and the Conservatives do still hold in London. But it's then when she goes back home to the to you know the West Midlands or another part of the country with more marginal seats, everyone goes, "Oh, have you heard that Arshel is still is massively in debt because of Grenfell, and the government is refusing to pay?" The, one of the political problems is that it's starting. I'm told by conservative <laughs> MPs, it's starting <laughs> to seep into not just the mailbags of MPs with marginal seats in cities. Who there's this kind of weird problem where the Conservative Party has developed London blindness, right? It just cannot see its 21 London MPs, which is weird when you consider that one of them is the Prime Minister. But they've just kind of started like, well, what would happen if we lost 21 seats at the next election? We wouldn't be able to govern. We can barely do that now. I think what started to happen is then the political consequences of the fact that a lot of people who are integral to the Conservative Party's ability to govern have kids who are directly affected by this scandal, have friends who are directly affected by this scandal, and the political stuff now, right? Because it would obviously not be defensible if they'd gone just palm the cost off on of lo- on local authorities, but it would not be as politically painful as the position they're now in. And I think the central thing is is that there's a large chunk of, of the government which broadly has a yeah this kind of incredibly sort of retrograde attitude about who lives in tower blocks is almost trying to govern an electorate that doesn't exist and basically thinks yeah as indeed like some like some common left-wing commentary on this goes oh the reason why this is happening is people have contempt for the poor it's like well in the nicest possible way if you live in one of the like lovely posh cladded blocks around here and you're an owner occupier you're being made poor by government policy but you certainly weren't poor to begin with and i think the the political reason why this is acute is that your average conservative mp does understand that this is is their problem but the government has this kind of attitude and like oh we're not for these people we're basically for the people who've made the towers mm. and and the, what we're going to start seeing is the collision between that imagined electoral coalition and that real electoral coalition i think it's also worth thinking about the scale of this as well because if the plan was just to focus on buildings that were over 18 meters first i think like to that extent the 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 prioritization of those blocks makes sense because clearly 
I mean, I suppose it depends on the exact buildings, but in general, it would be, it's more difficult to escape from a very tall building in a fire than a less tall building. So it kind of makes sense to prioritize those buildings, but like the divide between buildings that are over 18 meters high in England, where the government will replace the cladding and buildings between 11 meters and 18 meters where you'll have to take out this loan is huge in the buildings over 18 meters high there are estimated to only be about 10,000 of them in the UK which is obviously still quite a lot but when you include then buildings over 11 meters that according to inside housing these are these are their figures then then it jumps up to 100,000 buildings so even though like you're you're really talking about just a tiny fraction of the buildings that are affected by this and it's just a tiny fraction of the people who live in these unsafe buildings are actually going to be having their cladding replaced by the government and everyone else is go is like really the majority of people are in the situation where they're taking on this loan so i suppose the way the policy is framed i think the question of scale is is slightly elided because you just think oh that's great they're they're sorting out the big tar blocks but in terms of the numbers of people like you were saying Stephen the numbers of voters affected by this it's many 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 more people who are facing bankruptcy or you know the financial impact of that extra you know the government has said that the loans would be capped at 50 pounds per month but I said I think like an additional cost of 50 pounds per month probably indefinitely because there's unsafe cladding on your property and that's not even including all the other costs that Anish was talking about that's still a huge financial impediment that people shouldn't have to personally shoulder who had like no no way of knowing when they bought those properties that they weren't like fit for human habitation that they like weren't fire safe um so just I think that the scale of that problem is huge it's a bit like at school when they sort of explain the the relative societal harm of alcohol versus drugs I think in the clearly on an individual level like one person taking heroin is at more risk than someone drinking a beer and I suppose the equivalent is like one person in a very tall building with unsafe cladding is at more risk than another person in a less tall building with unsafe cladding. But then on a society-wide level, the harm done by illegal drugs versus the harm done by alcohol consumption in the round is like, it's it's much, much higher, the societal harm of alcohol, just because it's much more widespread rather than the tiny numbers of people taking illegal drugs, relatively speaking. And it's sort of the same thing where the way the scale isn't being properly taken into consideration means that even if you think, as I'm sure Robert Jenrick seems to, that you know this is based on a really thorough risk assessment, if you think you're sort of resolving the riskiest cases, you're not really resolving the main source of the risk, which is many, many, many more people living in like fire unsafe homes who aren't getting the government support. But also, like I think that point that you made, Anush, about all of the other costs, because I, I mentioned this issue in Morning Call this morning, and we had loads of replies 
from people who live in places that have sort of fire safety issues that aren't to do with cladding. I was saying this to Stephen the other day and then I kind of realized I don't even really know about it, but I think I also live in a building that doesn't have a cladding issue but has that doesn't have fire safe insulation and it probably doesn't affect me personally because I rent but for the people like for our neighbors who who own their flats it's a huge worry and you know there are like residents meetings over zoom every week to talk about it but we had loads of replies from lots of people in that situation people who we like we had one email from from someone who I who I like know personally who's in his 30s and he's got a bill of £20,000 to fix fire safety issues in his building. It isn't cladding, it's to do with cavity barriers. And their building is just one metre under the magical 18 metres. And I just think that when you take into account not just the the kind of the height of the buildings, but the all of the other fire safety issues, it's really like, it's a good headline, I suppose, to change the cladding on tall buildings over a certain height but it sort of it doesn't really address any of the any of the concerns in the round yeah that's really interesting about all of the responses that you got to the email and it it does chime with with what Stephen says about how sort of you may know someone who knows someone and that's going to get more and more widespread as more and more people realize that they're being hit with these costs and of course a good headline figure for a narrow number of buildings is not going to have an impact in real life to stop that happening and seeping into MPs' mailbags and pervading the general consciousness of homeowners and leaseholders. And also people who are renting as well will be aware of of issues like this happening in their building and they may well have to pay higher service charges, for example. So it probably will affect, you know, a big, big significant chunk of people who, who live in flats across the country. And like Stephen says, the politics of that are going to become more and more challenging for the government. Um, There's already a Daily Mail campaign to end the cladding scandal. And I think that that says quite a lot. Also, the more the government leaves it without the adequate amount of help, the more political capital it loses on this issue, because already people have been hit with these costs, already people are in debt, already people have been made bankrupt by this. And that's not going to change. That's just going to increase until they actually take it seriously delaying it I don't think will help them I mean they're they're due up for cross-examination at the Grenfell inquiry at the end of this year I think and so you know that if there's going to be more and more scandals coming out about this that coincides with probably what's going to be quite an embarrassing cross-examination at the end of the year then that could really put Grenfell and its legacy into the spotlight particularly if the pandemic has somehow abated or is a little more under control by them because of that the vaccination drive so they're not going to have very much to hide behind i mean let's not forget that the uk actually lifted its ban on combustible insulation for high rises in 2006 so you know and and then since then as has been shown by the inquiry and i won't go into the details but it's been a matter of sort of interpretation of buildings regulations and some builders had been begging for there to be more clarity on it because they're just quite grey and they can be interpreted in different ways. Arconic, which is the manufacturer of the cladding that was on Grenfell Tower, they were focusing on countries where national regulations are not as restrictive, in inverted commas, and one of those countries was the UK. So I don't think that the government is going to come come out well from the uh, inquiry. And if 
this cladding crisis has built up to more of a crescendo by then, by the time that they're in front of the, the inquiry, it could be massively damaging for them. So I don't really know, particularly not with the amount of opposition on their own back benches, why they haven't chosen to look this problem in the eye. It's also, I suppose, in conflict with a lot of the political values that the Conservatives would be hoping to align themselves with in terms of wanting to be the party of home ownership, the party of people who get on. And I think that the kinds of stories around private flat owners and so on, I think are particularly uncomfortable for the Conservatives' political interests and are in particular conflict with a kind of conservative sense of of justice and people's you know right to get what they pay for and for you know for their you know to to not sort of be be screwed over by things I I think it's the particular stories there was a a really moving one yesterday I mean there's there's that prominent one that you mentioned Anush that that woman who went bankrupt after buying her own home but there are plenty of others there was this this lawyer who bought her own home who lives in a in a meet, in a building with unsafe cladding that's below 18 meters and who is really worried that with the costs of not just the 50 pounds a month to replace the cladding but there I think there are other fire safety issues that they're paying the costs of the insurance is very very high and they have to pay for a fire warden 24/7 it's a huge amount of money She's really, really worried that she's going to go bankrupt. So not only would she lose her home, she would also lose her job because as a lawyer, she wouldn't be able to practice if she had gone bankrupt. Mm. And I think that's a heartbreaking story for everyone. But it's obviously a a difficult story for the conservatives to be seen not to be addressing, to not be on the side of, of homeowners who have got savings together and bought their first home. And, you know, I think... There's an obviously politically tricky angle to it that it's confusing to me in a way that the political difficulty of this isn't isn't more apparent to to Robert Jenrick and Co. But also I think the the thing is that it isn't just these stories of of injustice and more scandals around this, the financial and psychological burden, but it's also the the grimmer thing that as time goes on, it's just surely likely that one of these buildings where these problems are not being adequately addressed will result in a horrible story about a fire. I think that would be the concern. You know, it's like people's real safety as well as the financial side of things. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call 
you ask us. us. So this is a question from Vera in London who asks, why do the Lib Dems keep polling behind environmentalists who don't like trains? Stephen, you have been writing a bit within the past week about various parties' performances in the polls and also the impact of the Green vote. So how would you answer this question? Why do Lib Dems keep polling behind environmentalists who don't like trains? I'm glad that we've decided to repeat the exact wording of the question twice, just to like really annoy all of our green activists listening. I mean, also, actually, uh, it's worth noting that there is within the Green Party a, a, a sizable group called Greens for High Speed 2, who I think make a lot of really good arguments and are massively unfairly slagged off by other parts of the party for suggesting they're in the pocket of big train. I mean, one like... Just, I mean, imagine being, imagine being an activist in an environmental party and accusing people who are lobbying for more trains of being in the the pocket of big train. I mean, it's just like <sighs> some people, honestly. But so a lot of people got got, I would say, overly excited about one poll this week, which was one showing the Greens on their highest level since August 2019. But in many ways, that was the more important thing. Was what was not new about that poll, which is the the kind of Greens sort of what you might think of peacetime level, like the level of support they get when people aren't feeling particularly election-y seems to have reached a kind of new normal, right? So after about May 2019, it went up, it was continually bouncing around in the 4 to 8% zone, which obviously from a margin of error perspective, I basically somewhere, somewhere in that zone, spiking a bit higher after the local elections, which is kind of what we'd expect when a minor party has as good a set of local elections as the Greens did in May 2019. And now, yeah, the more important story than the Greens being on 8% is that they are continually polling pretty healthily and occasionally polling ahead of the Liberal Democrats. The central thing is, right, is the people who are committed and concerned about this issue, and obviously I've talked about doing this myself in in the past, right, people understand, I think, whether whether they understand it because they actually would articulate it like this, or they have broadly and correctly grasped this fairly obvious point, then if what you want to do is signal to the main parties that you are deeply concerned about the climate crisis, what is the obvious lever you pull, whether in local elections, in the polls, yada, yada, it's to say you're voting green. And I think people do that with varying levels of awareness and that's what they're doing. But one thing I think the polls in midterm tend to show is basically what people's expressive vote is, rather than their effective vote. So at the moment... I think if I was wrong by a pollster, I probably would go like green. And if I went don't know, I would be reallocated to how I voted in 2019, which would, of course, get me to green anyway. So but, you know, one way or the other, I would I would come out as as green. Now, in practice, because our local council, which will be the next opportunity I get to vote at that level, has been very pro low traffic neighbourhoods, which I am fairly typically quite pro. I think it's unlikely that I wouldn't go, OK, I need to send the strongest signal that I am in favour of what the council is doing. But so I think that's one of the main reasons, right? Ultimately, like the Greens are doing well for the same reason that UKIP were doing well, which is the, their central issue. The issue on which people care about is in the news. We're lucky in this country to now be in a situation where it is broadly accepted by almost everyone in politics and it is a problem. We now have a situation where, you know, the Sun and the Express are running Green campaigns. One party strategist said to me in 2019, you know, they, they said, you know, the things you can't leave leave your campaign room without are a climate policy and a childcare policy because voters aged 30 to, to 50 are broadly the, the swing voters doesn't really matter. 
They're the ones who directly touch by childcare policies and everyone in the country cares about the green issues. And you can see this, actually, you know, if you look at who are who who votes green in the polls now, just because they have the same social and attitudinal profile as the ones who are voting green under Corbyn, it's possible they're not actually the same people. But broadly, we're talking people across the age spectrum, a range of, of previous voting patterns, including for the Tory party. And I think then ultimately, it's like because they are the Green Party and people are concerned about green issues. I mean, I understand why it is that people in both the Labour and the Liberal Democrats will go, yeah, but they're not even for high speed two, or but we have a more sensible policy on nuclear or, or whatever. And I'm not saying those things are necessarily unreasonable, but I think it, it would be a mistake for the Liberal Democrats to believe that the their approach to their, their undoubted green problem, because that electoral coalition looks a lot like the successful electoral coalition of the Liberal Democrats, would be to go... Oh, actually, we're better at being green than them. The only way they would ever do that would be to travel back in time and to like pack the room so that the Green Party didn't rename itself from the Ecology Party in like the late 80s or early 90s. I forget when they really did that. But yeah, that's why. They're, they're seen as the most authentic way of going. I'm deeply concerned about what's happening to my biosphere. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think what you said about the fact that campaign strategists can't, can't leave the room without having a, a policy on climate change issues these days is is a really good one and and it sort of ties into what I've been thinking about the greens for a while now which is that not only do you have the main two parties putting climate change quite high up their their agenda more so than ever before but you also have just so many climate change climate crisis stories you know from the protests that were happening a year ago extinction rebellion however you feel about them they make headlines David Attenborough documentaries that you know take more of a a, a direct approach to referencing the impact on the planet than they ever have before you have all sorts of things that are, are just sort of swimming around at the top of people's consciousness coupled with the fact that the impact of climate policies on a local level are just so tangible. So low traffic neighbourhoods is one example. You have Sadiq Khan and TfL considering introducing a Greater London boundary charge for vehicles coming into London. So you have all of these kind of the impact of these kind of policies on the ground. So, you know, whether or not you're annoyed by some of them, or you don't agree with some of them, it's very much in the public conversation, both on Facebook groups, but also in politicians announcements and on TV. So kind of in the the local news war and the and the national news war. It's everywhere. And I think that means that if you are answering pollsters questions at the moment about which party you prefer, and you want to signal the fact that you're, you know, that you're affected by this conversation and that you're interested in it and you're enthusiastic about it, then you are, then you were probably putting green considerations into your choice higher than you have been before. So that might result in choosing a different party, but it also means that you'll opt for green if you're opting to demonstrate your enthusiasm for environmental policies. So I think that's been helpful for the greens. We actually did some polling with a polling company called Redfield and Wilton earlier this year in January. And the results for Sean Berry, who is their London mayoral candidate, were interesting. So she she got 9% of first preference votes. That's 1% behind the Lib Dem candidate. And then for second prefs, she got 30%, which is, you know, I know that there were there was lots of excitement among sort of green enthusiasts in the office. And of course, all of Stephen's very well rehearsed caveats about just one poll uh, apply. But I think it's I think it is interesting that you can see the local elections and the mayoral elections coming up 
as potentially a gauge of whether or not this kind of ambient green support that we're seeing can convert itself into actual votes come election time, because obviously we haven't had elections for a while. So so that will be interesting to see. But also the fact that they are polling well in some of these polls will mean that there's more chatter about them going into these elections. And that's a help for the party in itself. You know, if the Lib Dems look a bit limp in some of these polls, perhaps there's not so much interest in them from sort of the national media, whereas there might be a number of stories where people go and focus on a council where the Greens potentially could do well. And and the more that there's chatter about that, the more people will have heard about it when they go to the ballot box or they vote by post or whatever's going to happen this year. So I think it's a good time for them. And even if you can't extrapolate too much from individual polls, the mood music is good. And the mood music is an important motivator in itself. Yeah. And I suppose another way of looking at the original question from Vera in London, who I imagine is a Lib Dem, if not member than voter would be the way that that kind of encapsulates the challenge for the Lib Dems in that like that question is clearly an expression of frustration that the Lib Dems are not seen as as green a party as they see themselves or as many people as many Lib Dems would see themselves and I suppose some of that is the insurmountable problem that like if you're not called the Green Party, you can't be more green than the Green Party. And also, as as you were both saying, that's the, the most effective way of signaling your increasing prioritization of, of green issues if you're a sort of regular voter. But but it's also indicative of the challenge for the Lib Dems to reinvent themselves post-Brexit, I suppose, because when Ed Davey was elected as leader when he delivered his his virtual speech at a conference which oh some people clearly are, are more used to having to deliver awkward speeches over zoom but it was it was uncomfortable viewing just watching a speech to an empty room with tumbleweeds <laughs> he used that speech to try to relaunch the Lib Dems in a way post-Brexit as the party of a social care, the party of carers, and you know, Ed Davey is of course one himself. And then secondly, the the party of the climate crisis, which is something that he's really passionate about. And many, if not most Lib Dems really, really are, and do have very considered positions on this. But it's just the the challenge of kind of trying to do that, the it was a success in a way of the Lib Dems to position themselves as such a clearly pro-European party and to really cut through with that branding, even if the revoke policy didn't really work for them, the the pro-Remain policy did, particularly in the European elections. And I suppose now they're kind of trying to get over that and, and define themselves as the party of other things. And it's just really, really hard for them to do that when there isn't really much interest in the third party you know and you know possibly one day the fourth party if the if the greens continue to do better there isn't really much space for them to signal that they are more interested in social care and climate change now than they were in recent years that they've sort of shifted their focus there's sort of there's not really any anywhere for them to make that case and I suppose it's just going to take a long time maybe the the problem of really defining yourself as a pro-European party for so long is that then when that becomes slightly less salient, it's hard to redefine yourself. One of the sort of crucial differences is 
well, it's basically who is the Green Party leader is a question with a, a correct answer that is also the wrong answer, because the correct answer is Sean Berry and Jonathan Bartley, or as Getty Image is desperately, desperate to believe, Jonathan Berry and Sean Bartley. <laughs> but the actual answer in most minds is Caroline Lucas, right? She is the most high profile and she's been around for a long time. She speaks very well. She's kind of people who people associate with, with the party. And although many Liberal Democrats criticised him at the time and felt he wasn't very effective, one of the major losses when Vince Cable stepped down is he was basically the last Liberal Democrat that anyone normal had heard of. And the party's resting average under Vince was higher than it was under, under Farron and higher than it was under Joe Swinson. And I, I think it's partly just the resting average stuff. I kind of think, I mean, it's odd. When, when Ed Davey gave that speech, I, I sent a tweet that loads of people interpreted as a pro-Keir one, which was one of the advantages Keir Starmer had. And one of the reasons why Keir Starmer had a, a good conference season in the mind of the lobby is, is Keir Starmer has a huge amount of experience at like giving speeches to empty rooms from his time at DPP, right? He's actually really well, well developed for the age of Zoom. Whereas Ed Davey, I think, in every way, is actually a much better conference speecher than Keir Starmer. But actually, one of the reasons why his speech was so terrible is, I mean, like, it had pause for laughter. And it's like, why would you pause for laughter, Ed? Laughter, Ed. Who do you think's going to laugh? The no one else in the room? Like, <laughs> it's also a bit like when you see a, a, a play or a or a musical filmed up close. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just a bit too expressive. Yeah, <laughs> when it's right there in your face, you need to be sort of hundreds and hundreds of meters away for for that to work. But the thing is, it's just as I'm not saying that I I think that you know Keir Starmer will stink up the joint in his first proper conference speech. But just as when normal politics comes around, the fact that like Lib Dem activists will leave the hall feeling you know kind of perked up because Ed Davey will do the kind of like you know defense of liberalism, my time in fighting climate change, and they'll all feel a bit better. The thing that's slightly weird about politics at the moment, and the thing that I think will be very weird about the local elections, is because we're all stuck inside, and there isn't therefore that much local politics than people feel and experience. This is going to be quite a national election, which help will help them climate change's high salience, will therefore help the Greens in areas like Solihull, where they have a, a very good chance of being ahead of a rainbow coalition, and will help them in in uh, in places like Liverpool, where they and the Lib Dems are kind of still in a tussle for who the second party is. And for various reasons, I think politics in Liverpool at the moment are well placed for a third party to do well. He said gently doing disclaimers around those issues. But I think once we have a return to, I don't mean normal politics as in, yeah, the things we'll be arguing about will be strange and unpredictable and deeply important as they always are. But once we get back to the era of normal politics, I being able to point at potholes again, conference speeches in, in, in non-empty rooms, I do think some of the stuff for the Lib Dems will improve, not necessarily in terms of their poll share, but like when the dust settles, what really matters, I think, for the Greens isn't they can get into a position where seats where they could plausibly win. And although I think there's some way from this being the case in Solihull, I think Solihull is a place that they could replace the the Liberal Democrats as the major conservative challenger in a seat that the Lib Dems did, did hold for a long time. I think they could emerge as plausible challenges across Bristol. And those are really the challenges for the Green Party, because at the moment, we kind of know that what happens is, is a bunch of people go, yeah, I love the Green Party. And then the general election happens. And in different ways, both Labour and the Liberal Democrats can, and indeed the Conservatives can use the hammer of, well, they're nice, but they can't win round here. And did we mention we have an environmental policy too? 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Anusha Kellyan. You can find me on Twitter at PronouncedAlva. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can find me on Twitter as at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed this, please rate and review and don't forget to subscribe. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.